Welcome to CSU Stories, the podcast where we tell the stories of the unique work of people in regional New South Wales and beyond. From Hollywood careers to amphibian specialists, we talk with CSU staff, students, alumni and members of our communities to share how our regions are shaping Australia and the world. Today we're speaking with Charles Sturt, Senior Lecturer, Paramedic and Researcher Philip Ebbs about emergency management and paramedicine. Philip is an expert in the review of clinical incidents involving avoidable harm. He was appointed to the rank of Superintendent with the New South Wales Ambulance and has been involved in high profile emergency incidents over the years. His recent research has been focused on ethics in paramedicine to help guide decision making. So Philip, welcome to Charles Sturt's stories today. Thanks very much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure and we thank you for speaking with us. Now, Philip, you've been a paramedic for a long time and then you've moved into researching and academia. Can you tell me just a little bit about what drew you to paramedicine to begin with? Well, it's funny you, uh, you ask that because I don't get asked that very often and it's a, mm. there's a little bit of a story uh, behind how I, I came into paramedicine. So when I was in my, my final year of of high school, you know, a young 18-year-old with the, the world ahead of me and uh, <laughs> obviously invincible and, and, and wanting to be autonomous in all things as, as yeah. most 18-year-old boys are. Yeah. Um, it was at that time that I, I actually got uh, quite ill. I, um, I, I, I had a, a, a nasty condition and, um, and needed some fairly substantial thoracic surgery, um, uh-huh. without which I... I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to to live for any any long period of time. Wow! And so, in that in in those in that final year of of studies in in high school, I obviously got admitted to hospital and and uh, underwent surgery and things like that. And I, I guess in that in that time, I transformed, or in those few weeks, you know, where, where the the treatment was particularly yeah was particularly focused. Mm. I guess I started to realise that in fact I probably wasn't. I probably invincible? wasn't all that invincible. Um, no. But I think it. I think it went more than that. It went went beyond that. It wasn't just about not being invincible. It was probably also a recognition that that my survival was actually dependent on on others, on mm. other members of our community. And so, for example, you know, other members of 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 the health workforce. Um, the expertise of doctors and nurses and, and, and other clinicians, the physiotherapists that, that help with re- rehabilitation. I, I, I understood or I came to understand that in actual fact not only was I not, not invincible and, and not as autonomous as I'd like to think, but, but that I was and that we all are vulnerable people and that our, our well-being and sometimes our very survival uh, depends on, on those around us. And so I, I, I recognised that, and then I also recognised something that should have been obvious, and that was just that that healthcare is actually a really legitimate, you know, field of practice. It's a really legitimate way of of meaningfully helping people and meaningfully, you know, contributing to the the, the well-being of others. Paramedicine, in particular, is such a frontline provision of of life-saving and life-changing healthcare. Without that frontline paramedicine or paramedic that can come in and assess that situation quickly, you know, outcomes can be so vastly different, can't they? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And 
to be honest, I didn't I didn't think of being a paramedic because I was drawn to necessarily the emergency side of things. It was just that there was a traineeship being offered uh, at the time by New South Wales Ambulance to become a paramedic, and um, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll give myself in my first year out of high school. I thought I'll give myself a year to see if I can get into that traineeship, and if that doesn't work, then I'll. I'll go through some more traditional parts of study and 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 look at um, what health profession I might get involved in, but uh, New South Wales Ambulance took me first, um, which was uh, <laughs> kind of re remarkable in itself, and uh, and so um, I, I entered training, uh, you know, in you know in my, my second year after being in high school, having held down some other jobs while I was I was waiting for for that to. Um, to come to fruition. To come through. So obviously the care that you received during that really challenging period when you were ill had a huge impact on you and I guess if it wasn't paramedicine you would have looked for other pathways into being a health practitioner in, in some ways. What was it like when you, you were accepted into your paramedicine course? I imagine it was all new. How, how were those first few weeks and months learning all of that information and all of the things that you'd be doing? Well, we did it through a traineeship at the time, and so uh, you know the way it was structured was that you'd have six weeks only, six weeks in a classroom, and then you were out on the road. Um, wow, that's quick. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And you'd have a you'd have a mentor for the for the first eight or nine months. So they it was it was supposed to be a year, but the the, the health shortages, the workforce shortages, were such that that wasn't really a a luxury that was afforded, and then after about after about that that nine month ten month mark, then you're back for a, for I think a three week training course, and then you're out on the road and mentoring others. So it was a, a very different day to what it is um, these days. Um, so in reflection, I'd I'd have to say that I wish <laughs> I wish we had um, a university program. Or I wish the university programs in paramedicine were so well known back then as what they were, what they are now. Um, because mm -hmm. I'd much rather train over a three or four year period, or in medicine a five or six year period. You know, before I enter the the cut and thrust of 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 challenging, you know, health decision making and and, and saving lives. You know, then then the way that the way that I did it was, which was rather rather quick to be honest. But I think it was really it was a really daunting um, period mm. at first. And you know, the types of people that that are attracted to paramedics and are, are usually um, people who, you know, who are willing to take on challenges that that other members of society are, are, are less um, you know less willing to. And they usually, uh, as a, as a rule, paramedics um, usually rise to the challenge, and that's something that is so remarkable about so, so many of my colleagues that I've had the privilege of working with over over so many years. So yeah, it was really rather daunting at first, and it was a very steep learning curve. And I, I'd have to say I'm I'm glad we do it so much better these these days at uh, through a through a university-based uh, paramedicine program. Mm, absolutely, and I suppose over time it, it's become more of a, a regulated profession and, and with better training and, and university training I guess there comes with that more oversight and review of how paramedicine is done and, and the decision making that goes on in emergency situations. I mean and you've been a paramedic for a long time and you've worked in some high profile incidents I suppose for want of a better way of describing them, you know, I've seen that you've been involved with the Hunter floods, security related operations and the Link Cafe, I mean can you talk us through being in a, in a high intensity and high stakes with people's lives 
in the balance with those types of operations or situations. What is that like? How do you cope in those moments and how do you make those decisions in those circumstances? Well, I, I, I think the first thing to say is that your training obviously comes into play. Um, mm. You're trained and, and drilled in, in procedures and things that structures that you need to establish in mm -hmm. say large incidents and, and critical incidents and you you know if, for example I remember in the, the Hunter floods I got a call about 4.30 in the morning to say that look Dun, Dungog is, is having some real problems there's going to be a nursing home that's going to be flooded soon later later in the morning there was a there was a house floating down the river just adjacent to that town the flooding had ramped up very quickly in the hunter and then mm. quickly spread across through the whole of the hunter valley and down to down to the central coast and then those floodwaters and and the storm came in and and affected newcastle so when when you get a call at 4:30 or so in the morning to say um, go in and, and set up a um, you know an incident management um, team and 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 We'll, we'll start to give you some resources to, to manage this incident in and of itself. What happens is, is that you, you immediately go to rely on, on your training and, mm -hmm. and on setting up the structures that, that, that you've been drilled in and you've, you've done so many times before. And those structures are good and they're complemented by a good team because usually mm -hmm. what you, you do is you work with a range of people over over a number of years and, and you bring those team members in the local area in and they, they know what their roles are. And those things are all very good and, and very helpful. There are the, the, the real challenges around your high stakes critical incidents is that there are inevitably circumstances where tough decisions have to be made. So for example in the in the Hunter floods, we had a mm -hmm. circumstance where not only we were dealing with a very rapidly changing environment around us that, that mm -hmm. was a lot of risks to, to paramedics and emergency services, but also we were dealing with a rapidly escalating uh, call volume from, from members of the community that, that needed paramedic help and other, mm -hmm. other types of help that obviously I was involved in the paramedic side of things. And essentially what happens is that you... Um, you have to coordinate a, a range of resources and uh, and address a range of issues in in circumstances that are inherently uncertain and mm. um, in circumstances where all the resources that you'd like to be available are not available and that's where we have these grey areas of of incident management and grey areas of practice that arise and and that's where some of the real challenging decisions um, yeah, come to the fore. Well, that's right, and the grey areas of making decisions and grey areas of practice, I mean, it, it's comforting in a way for someone like me to hear that there is this intense training, there are these clear structures, these clear roles and responsibilities so that when everyone turns up, everyone knows what they're meant to do. But as you say, with rapidly changing circumstances that are slightly unknown, how do you make the best decision you can at the time? And I mean, I suppose... Part of that is you've started to look into how ethics can be applied in, in paramedic decision making because you've noted, you've written a chapter in this book, co-authored a chapter in this book talking about you often don't have time to consult on every decision, often you have to act quickly and in circumstances that are confusing or grey areas. So can you talk me through a little bit how ethics can be beneficial to paramedics in those really difficult moments. Yeah, absolutely. E ethics can be really beneficial to the commander 
in charge of a large incident, such as you may you may you refer to the, the Link Cafe siege or the Hunter floods or any range of other incidents. Ethics mm. can be really important to to people who are in charge of, of those types of high profile incidents. And when those grey areas come up, when those tough decisions have to be made, usually what what people who are in charge think about is well well what are the laws um, that are related to to this particular circumstance that's uh, that's that I'm confronted with uh, what are the policies um, that I have to follow um, what's normally done if, if mm. normally you know if, if my colleague was was faced with the same circumstance where we had to make some decisions about you know who gets the next ambulance or things like that what would normally be done in these circumstances and you also think about the what are the community expectations, and then also what are the right things to do in in different circumstances. So all these things. Um, a lot of things yeah. to consider into one decision, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, there's so much. There is so much to, to to consider within very short time frames. So you think about the individual paramedic um, that's operating out there today. They'll have tough, tough decisions to make just on every single call they they go to. Um, uh, sometimes they'll have to make a decision about um, whether they they encourage a patient to come to hospital um, even though the patient doesn't want to. They want to stay at home and, and just want the paramedics to give the care that they can at home. But the paramedics might say, well, ha hang on, I, I know you want to stay at home, but it might be best for you to come to hospital. And, and that's one type of tough decision that a paramedic um, might have to make because sometimes it, it can be, um, you know, very difficult um, mm -hmm. for, for patients to... Um, to, to leave home and, and go to hospital, but then if, as you escalate things, there might be circumstances where, say, for a person who's who's quite mentally un, unwell um, or having a you know an acute um, psychotic illness, um, mm. where paramedics have to make decisions about taking someone to a hospital against their will. That's a really tough decision about saying, okay, well we're going to deprive this person of their, their right to decide whether they go to hospital owing to their, their current mental, um, mentally disordered state. That's a really tough decision to make um, and, and, making a, and making that decision, it, 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 it's not something that you, you want to get wrong because you, you may well be, you don't want to breach that person's, uh, that person's dignity or even in the circumstances of where you're resuscitating a, a, a person there will inevitably become a point in time where, where resuscitation efforts, if they're not successful, where they'll have to, to cease. And mm. um, asking yourself and, and being aware of, okay, well, at what point in time does that, does that occur is not an easy, straightforward question. Now, now to put people's minds at ease, there are laws and there's policies and guidelines that help guide paramedics in all these decisions and there's lots of training and resources that paramedic, paramedics get prior to the situation to help them make their, their decision. You could have a thousand laws or, and a million policies and guidelines and there will still be circumstances that arise in daily paramedic practice where paramedics just need to make a good decision even though they don't have a guideline or a law or a policy to tell them exactly what to do. And it's in those circumstances that, that ethics becomes so, so important when paramedics have to negotiate um, you know, a decision amongst a range of competing 
changing and sometimes unknown elements that are occurring around them. And I think that's a, that makes so much sense to me when you break it down like that because yes, you think, well, they'll follow the law, you know, they'll follow what they're meant to do or they'll follow that policy that's been given to them. But as you say, when you go through that list of things and considerations and, and directives and you realise there isn't one for this particular circumstance, then at that point the paramedic needs to make a decision that is still a good decision and that's where ethics can really come in to support that. I mean, in terms of ethics too, is, that, is it a single framework that can support paramedics? Is it an ever-evolving thing? How do you frame up the ethics that a paramedic should, I guess, refer to or embody? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, so ethics is, is concerned with with uh, you know what people should do in different circumstances. It's, it's mm. concerned with you know the, the people taking actions or the right actions to take so that we can achieve. Uh, some people would say to achieve human flourishing. It's it's concerned with all these things about what what, what should we do in these grey in these grey areas and, and, mm. and in these uh, challenging, unclear circumstances and. Uh, it, it might be of some comfort, and I try and tell tell our students that you know after thousands of years of trying, we we actually don't have a one single ethical framework that helps us make decisions in all different circumstances. There are there are lots and lots of different ethical frameworks that that are out there in the community, and they're based on uh, different uh, what we call normative ethical theories. And even those normative theories change themselves over time as um, as we as as a society evolve. So ethics itself is not something that you can pin down in black and white terms as you, you would perhaps with the law. It's um, something that is ever-changing. Uh, fortunately for us in, in Western um, healthcare, we, we have a, an approach to ethics which, is, which has come to be called principalism. Principalism is, is a set of four principles that, that health practitioners will will generally, uh, a set of four principles that health practitioners will generally operate by and, and those four principles are um, to maintain patient autonomy, uh, beneficence, so to, to do the best for patients and uh, non-maleficence, uh, which is to not harm patients and also mm. justice, to do the right thing. So mm. autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence and justice are the four principles of principalism. So. In this particular book, um, because we're just trying to introduce people to some of the key principles that under, underpin daily ethical decision making, we talk about how those four different principles can be applied to daily paramedic practice to help people make reasonable decisions. Mm. And I wonder too in the moment, because particularly around that wanting to do the right thing, and I imagine a lot of people, well, probably all people who are drawn to be paramedics, want to do the right thing and help humans flourish and save people's lives and, and be of benefit to people. So it would be doing the right thing. I wonder how, that, how different people see doing the right thing, even between paramedics. When you're in those grey situations, does it occur to you that the decision you might make could be reviewed or criticised or is it in that moment you really are focused on distilling all those considerations to make the best decision possible? You raise a really important point, and that is that not only will clinicians or paramedics view what the right thing to do as, as uh, differently to one mm. another, but also paramedics as a profession will, in some circumstances, 
see the right thing as being something that is different to what the community might expect and and that's where these these differences in in beliefs and and, and values that you know are challenged and and, and need to be uh, thrashed out so the the reality is that um, part of you know part of kind of our fundamentals in, in principalism at least is is to understand that that while we might have these four principles of, of autonomy beneficence non-maleficence and justice that that people will have different views about what each of those principles constitutes in in each circumstance and we, we have to be respectful that people will have slightly different views the beautiful thing about principalism is that it allows people you know a framework upon which to to consider consider things with a little bit more certainty than say just asking the person to think about a whole ethical theory and trying to apply it um, into practice in, in the moment that a decision has to be made. Going to the other question which is you know firstly you're asking about whether people see ethics differently they absolutely do and, and different uh, members of the community will see the right thing to do as being different to, to other members of the community but also there's that question of well what if this case is reviewed and, and mm. how, how does ethics help with, with all that? And I think that one of the key points in the chapter that we're trying to convey is that ethical, uh, an ethical framework, in some ways I think the, the most beneficial role of an ethical framework is that it helps paramedics to make decisions that are more defensible. It helps make paramedics to make decisions and, and to articulate the basis, the ethical basis upon which those tough decisions were made. I made the decision because um, I wanted to maintain the patient's autonomy, and mm. had I done another thing, it would have it would have compromised the patient's autonomy. So, a knowledge of these ethical principles can can help um, the paramedic more clearly articulate what their 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 thought thinking patterns were at the time, and it makes what they are doing more defensible. Yeah. And not only that, it probably makes it more of a learning experience for them too, instead of that review becoming punitive, when you have that language of those principles and they're explaining these are the principles and this is why I did this, well then you can see where maybe that logic broke down or you could see how you might make a different decision on those principles differently next time. Absolutely, and I think that's the, the next stage of that, that process is that the immediate decision that's made might be more defensible but then the paramedic is able to go away from that circumstance and say, well, in the heat of the moment, I made that decision. Would I make that same decision again? If I was faced with the same circumstances or similar circumstances again, what would be, now that I've got time to think about how I would act, um, mm. what would be the most optimal decision to make? And then they can mm. think about that and learn from that. It also means that for as re reviewers, and you know, um, I've been involved with review of a number of incidents, Reviewers um, in these cases are, are tend to look at understanding what the clinician was thinking at the time, and and to be able to and they don't expect um, clinicians to be perfect. They just expect that reasonable decisions and reasonable actions were made in in the circumstances. And so, mm -hmm. what what happens is that if you are able to articulate, you know, your your thought processes and your actions, even where those actions weren't perfect. If you're able to articulate the reasons why you took certain actions or made certain decisions using common terms, then it helps other people, such as reviewers and such as members of the public, such as the courts, to understand mm -hmm. exactly what was going through your mind. And I don't seriously think that anyone expects a paramedic to be perfect in all circumstances. No. And I think, that, I think that human beings understand that, that sometimes in the heat of moments, 
um, mistakes can be made. But what humans do, what the community does expect is that, that, that paramedics make reasonable decisions and, and take reasonable actions and that's where ethics can really, really help them. And changing gears a little bit too, I suppose it would then help individual paramedics on an emotional level because I imagine there is an emotional toll that comes with being a paramedic and the experiences that you're in day in, day out. Emotionally dealing with the decisions you're making and the situations you're exposed to would be quite a big part of being a paramedic, I imagine. As a paramedic in the, the first few years, um, certainly up to the first five years or so, what you find is that a lot of paramedics are, are uh, you know, still, you know, enamoured, if you like, with the excitement. They, they love the excitement of the job and so mm -hmm. they, 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 a lot of the emotional toll doesn't necessarily get, get processed in those first few years because everything is new and, and, and exciting. And then it's after that point in time that the, the emotional toll and the, the emotional baggage and um, the experiences that paramedics um, you know, go through um, have, have to start being uh, dealt with in earnest if the, mm. if the paramedic wishes to, um, to have a, a long uh, fruitful career, which is what we all want. Mm. And so I think that not only you know, are there um, appropriate ways um, to help deal with that through counselling and, and other areas that I'm not involved with, but certainly from an ethical um, point of view, you know, having a, a having a sense of what the accepted ethical framework is, and and what the the accepted kind of principles are for making decisions in the community and across the health the health professions, can be really helpful because it it, it helps a. Uh, a paramedic to not second guess themselves so much and not to give themselves such a hard time when they've made a decision, they can actually at least say, well, I, I made that decision um, based on the information I had at the time um, and it was the best decision I could make in those circumstances and it was based on on the logic that, that, I, was, that, that I was drawn to at the time. And then they can say, but it doesn't have to be perfect because I don't have to be perfect in these circumstances because you know, an ethical approach is not always the, the perfect approach, it's just the reasonable one. That's right, and is there any such perfect approach? Probably not. Look, Philip, thank you so much for your time speaking with us today. I think our Charles Sturt Bachelor of Paramedicine students are really lucky to have you teaching them and on board and, and researching these ethical frameworks to improve uh, the industry going forward. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I, uh, I I can't think of anything else. It's been a good discussion. I, I I would just say one thing, and I I think it's a really important, really important point in in our chapter, and, and that is that over a long career, you know, paramedics can really beat themselves up about, mm. um, about cases that don't go well, um, mm. and or about um, decisions that were were made that in hindsight turn out not to be perfect, and. What we are trying to, to convey here is that in the heat of the moment, paramedics and other emergency professionals have to make a decision and they, they have to make a decision you know, when, where all the information they'd like to have and where all the resources that they would like to have simply aren't present. And so in those circumstances, it, it's not the expectation of health services generally, uh, nor of the community generally, nor of the courts that people will make perfect decisions. What we'd rather, and, and what I think is the fair expectations, is that reasonable decisions are made in the circumstances based on some type of, some type of framework, and that those reasonable decisions are indeed good enough, even if they turn out to be not the most 
optimal decisions mm. in hindsight. And I think that's an important lesson um, as a way of helping um, paramedics and, and other emergency service professionals um, not give themselves too much of a hard time when they've performed to the best of their ability over a long and otherwise exceptional career. That's right. I think, uh, you know, over over my years in, in talking to different people in different uh, industries, I particularly remember one conversation with an astronaut from America and he had moved into, he'd actually moved into aviation uh, review and then he moved into healthcare, which was fascinating. And he said, the biggest thing that healthcare workers need to remember is that if you you know, you're not going to get things done perfectly. You're not always going to follow every single rule perfectly because of the different circumstances. Your biggest commitment is to do no further harm. So, you know, human beings aren't robots and if you can avoid avoid avoidable harm <laughs> then yeah, then you're doing you know, you can dust yourself off and get up the next day and do it again. Um Absolutely. And I think too with emergency workers, they're, they're such unsung achievers in our society and, and bringing it back to even your foray into paramedicine, Philip, until you, until you are dependent on a paramedic or an emergency health worker to save your life or a loved one's life, it can be very easy to forget just how critical they are in society. And I think it's a really wonderful thing to be part of an institution like Charles Sturt that is training these frontline workers um, for the future and doing it in such a way that they can have a long and successful and emotionally uh, supportive or fulfilling career as well. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and just as a, not to plug CSU, but rather just to, to be quite honest about mm. the, the reputation of CSU in, in, mm. in paramedics. And CSU has, has been running the paramedic degree for longer than any other university in Australia. We've got more than 20 years experience in, in running mm. these types of degree programs. And we're, we've been running it probably for longer than any other university in the world and we're internationally renowned for our, our teaching in, in, in paramedicine. So when I was asked to come across from, from industry to a university, mm -hmm. I, I could quite honestly say that I, I would not have come across into the university sector uh, for any other university but for Charles Sturt University because that's simply the reputation that Charles Sturt University has in uh, paramedicine and also in the wider um, emergency services space. Mm, which is fantastic and a reputation that you are building and adding to every single day, Philip. So, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed our discussion and thank you for speaking with us today, Philip. No worries. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening and we look forward to sharing all of our CSU stories with you. For more information on CSU stories, go to news.csu.edu.au.